I was thinking um, recently about children. Uh, I have two of them, and they are growing older. Uh, my oldest, Miriam, is 14 now, and my youngest is 12. And one of the things that I've realized is that when I thought about having children before I became a parent, I imagined certain things about them, but that all the things I'm realizing I imagined about them all took place in like the first three years of their life. Those were all the things that I imagined. I imagined some good things, right? Like, for example, I imagined what it would be like when they were born. Right, that moment, and it's like this miracle's happened and they're here and it was wonderful and, and it was, it was incredible, it was, it was amazing. Or I imagined them learning to walk, their first steps and kind of that teetery, tottery phase and as a parent you get to sort of walk behind them and they're holding onto your fingers and they're trying to learn to take steps and, um, and it, which is an amazing thing to watch. Uh, I imagined what it would be like um, to imagine them learning to speak and that was incredible, hearing their mother stand before them and go, mom, mom, ma, and they go, dad, da, and you're like. <laughs> I also imagined some hard things, but again, all of them were like kind of the age of three and under, right? I imagined what sleepless nights would be like, and they happened, and they were no fun, just as I had imagined. I imagined what the move to solid foods would be like, and it was about as messy as I could have imagined. You know, you can't blame them when you're heating up squash and carrots for breakfast when they make a face uh, at you as you're trying to kind of feed it to them. Who wants squash and carrots for breakfast? But that's what we do. And after a sleepless night, I kind of enjoyed giving it to them, right? It's like, <laughs> you kept me up all night. This is what you get, right? Because that's how mature I am. Um, all the things, though, that I imagined all sort of stopped by a certain age. And one of the things I've learned as my kids get older is even though I didn't imagine more beyond those points, they stay around after those points are done. They don't leave the house after age three. They stay. And so then as they get older, there's all of these new things that for me, I didn't think about or anticipate that you get to experience as a parent. Um, good things as well, right? Like I love as my girls are getting older, watching them develop an identity and a passion for things and seeing them sort of take hold of how they're wired and Beth and I getting to sit and talk about it. Like, I wonder how this is gonna impact the world. I wonder what they're gonna do with this in the decades to come or watching them uh, explore the concepts of faith, explore who they think Jesus is and to take steps in that direction, not just because mom and dad go to church, and it's wonderful to see that. It's wonderful seeing them develop a sense of humor. Uh, and like they're becoming sarcastic and they're actually funny. And so they'll make a comment and you turn around going, that was actually a well-timed joke. It was funny. You said it at the right moment. Like they become funny and you interact with them like real people. And it's great. But there are other things <laughs> as they get older and puberty years come that I didn't think about that are not as fun. And those are true as well. For example, <laughs> my, we had a friend, Beth and I had a friend that wrote her a, an email recently and in the email said, hey, I don't mean to brag, but I can ruin my teenager's day just by saying good morning. Or something that has been an unexpected challenge 
has been watching my daughters as they get older realize that the values and the practices that we talked about in our family aren't how other people act. That the things we talked about wanting to be about is not how the real world necessarily works. And how you try to walk with them as they navigate that bridge and that tension and that gap. For example, we might have said all we want to that when we have a disagreement, we are going to use our words and we're going to respect each other and listen to each other and how each other talks. But they've learned that not everybody works that way and that sometimes on the playground, might makes right. And they wonder if the real world really works that way or not. Or they might say that uh, we want to be honest and we want to be transparent all the time but that the person in your class who cheated and got away with it makes a higher score than you do and was rewarded for it. And so how do you interact with that when you see that the real world works differently? It's an unexpected thing, but all of us have to navigate that, not just as parents, but in our own lives of this gap between what we might see or think or even want in this world and the reality in work, in business, in politics, in institutions, of how the real world operates and how we navigate that gap is a challenge. I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we continue in this journey through Luke and read our text for today from chapter six, starting in verse 27. Jesus is teaching his disciples and this is what he says. He says, but I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask them for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask no matter who we are or how we walk in here, that we would encounter you this morning and hear your gospel and be transformed by it forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, what we see in this passage is that Jesus is talking to the disciples about how they are to treat other people. And he begins with an assumption. And the assumption he begins with is that um, they will be nice to people who are nice to them. And he says, it's not just going to be them, but he said, this is how people operate. When people treat us well, when we gain something from them, when maybe what they do or how they serve and or how they love us in our lives benefits us and it makes us happier or better, then it's natural that we're going to be nice to them in response. He says, it might even not be because you're a good person. It might be because it's in your self-interest to be good to the people who benefit you. He says that the way that people are going to know that you are my followers is not that you're extra nice to the nice people. He says the way that people will know you're my followers is how you treat your enemies. 
Now, to rescue that word a little bit, because it can sound so dramatic, and I asked you today, who are your enemies? You might sit there and be like, oh, man, that's a big word. I don't know that I have any enemies. Maybe you do. Maybe you're aware of that. But that might feel distant. But really what he's talking about here are the individuals or the people or the groups or the systems in our life that are difficult, people that can cause us pain, people that can cause us anxiety, people that can feel, we feel like they're out to get us. Who are the difficult people, the bullies, the mean people that exist in our life? And those people don't go away when you graduate from middle school. They're with us all of our life. And what he says is, is that people will know that you are my followers by how you treat them. Now, what we know about human behavior is that when we find people or systems that are painful to us or who we believe are seeking to cause us harm, we kind of respond with an either fight or flight kind of mentality. The fight mentality is that we kind of look at them and we say, you know, if you're going to punch me, I'm going to punch you back. If you're going to push me, I'm going to put. I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to back away from you. The way you, 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 you handle a bully is you stand up to a bully, right? And the implication in that can be is that when we are punched, we need to know how to counterpunch. This is how politicians are described. This is how business leaders can be described. You've got to be a good counterpuncher in this world. On the other hand, we can experience flight. What we can say is when people are difficult or painful, we can say to ourselves or we say to our children or our grandchildren, just walk away, just go away from them. If they're being mean to you on the playground, go to another part of the playground. Just avoid being in that person's presence. And I want to be clear from the beginning, especially with this idea of avoiding people, that Jesus, it's always tempting of us to turn the teachings of Jesus into legalistic rules. And that is always a danger for us to do. And so it's wrong of us to hear this teaching of us and to go, that's what we always have to do in every situation ever. And that you can never, that walking away or avoiding a situation is wrong. It's not that you can say that. Because there are times when people experience abuse, when people are experiencing great trauma, and that the only and probably best response is to walk away for some amount of time or get away from the person who has power over us. So I want to be clear about that, that this is not about legalism, but it is about talking about how are we called to respond. Because what Jesus is offering here, while acknowledging that we might want to counterpunch or we might want to walk away, is he's saying that the way that my followers will at times be called to act is to choose a third way. A third way that is going to seem illogical, a third way that on the surface of it will not make sense, a way that others will look at you and go, that's not how the real world works. I, it's a great idea, but that's not how the real world works. And that the third way is to stand in the presence of your enemy, the one who hurts, the one who causes us pain or difficulty, to allow them to tease or to hurt or even to hit. And that we don't walk away and we don't counterpunch or cut down in our own way, but we respond with mercy. We respond with forgiveness. We respond by praying. We respond by when one cheek is offered, is struck, offering the other cheek as well. And then the next day we show up and do it again. We don't back down. We don't walk away. Now why in the world would Jesus say 
that if you're my followers, this is how you're going to be known, is how you respond like this. Why would Jesus call it? It is an illogical way of being. And make no doubt about it, it is a hard way of living. And when I say that this is a hard path, I don't mean like, oh, it's going to seem scary, but then you try it and it's really exhilarating and it works out and everything's okay. No, this way of living is hard and it will cost us. But the reason that Jesus calls us to this is for the same reason that Jesus calls us to everything. And that is that it is in this kind of response that the world changes. This is how systems change and people change and lives change. Is through this difficult response that may cost us a great deal. And it will never feel convenient or easy. You're never going to feel like doing it. If you wait to feel this response, we'll never do it. But the call today is there. And we might hear that and we might respond in the same way that my children are trying to figure out how to respond. It's like, is that, is that real? Like, are you actually asking us to do this? Because that feels like the kind of thing that a spiritual person is supposed to say. And we're supposed to sit and go, mm, yes, that's very spiritually deep and most powerful. I will offer the other cheek and pray. And then I leave here and I realize that the world doesn't actually work that way. Like, how do you navigate that gap when we see, and when you have people, leaders telling us, like, you cannot build a system. You can't run a church on those principles, much less a government. Can it work? Well, let's take some examples and to look at this. Let's look if this call is exactly how God can use us to change the world. And first off, let's look at the life of Jesus to see if it worked. Right? Jesus is our leader. Jesus is the one who teaches this. He's the one who calls us for this. And leadership is not about telling other people what to do. Leadership is about doing something and then inviting others to come do it with you. Jesus is not a leader because he can give a great sermon and say this. The question we ask to ask as we're following Jesus is, does Jesus do this? And do we see the change and transformation that happens if we live this out as well? And of course, the answer to that, friends, is yes. And we see that in so many ways in Jesus' life. But most importantly, we see it through the cross. What we believe is the central act in history. What you and I believe is that it is in the cross that we see Jesus teaching here in Luke 6 lived out. That he didn't run from the authorities. He didn't run from conflict. But he also didn't counterpunch. But that he stood and lived this out. And our world has never been the same since then. God changes the world through people who act this way. We saw this, and I got to experience this personally when I went to the Holy Land while I was a seminary student. And while I was there, one of the most powerful places I went was Gethsemane, the place where Jesus is praying with his disciples when the lynch mob comes and arrests him. And he knows what's coming, and as he says, he kneels in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. He prays in, in great desperation, and he says, Lord, let this cup pass from my hands, he says, but not my will, but thy will be done. Now, when you're in Gethsemane, and picture that moment, Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives is raised above Jerusalem. And so as our tour guide pointed out, that these people didn't just show up like they do in the story. Judas and the Roman authorities who came to arrest him, they didn't just like, ba -bum, like appear out of nowhere. That Jesus at night would have seen them coming because the only way they would have had light to walk and find Gethsemane was with torches. And so he would have seen this crowd while he's praying this prayer coming closer and coming closer and coming closer. And he knows that torture and death are what will follow. And yet when they arrive, he does not run. And it would have been simple because he knew where they were. He could have, as our tour guide said, just stayed ahead of them on the Mount of Olives, cross over the Mount of Olives, go into the wilderness. Jesus um, running would have been easy to do. 
He doesn't do that. But when also they arrive and try to arrest him, one of his followers, as you remember, pulls out a sword and Jesus tells him to put it away saying that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He chooses this way to respond and as he is whipped and as he is flogged and as he is nailed to a wooden cross and put up for people to mock while he dies, he prays, he asks for forgiveness, he shows mercy. And while it cost him dearly, including his own life, what we know and why we worship here today is that three days later, resurrection happened and new life happened and God transformed that pain into something beautiful and into something where we trust that that a new relationship has been opened up with God, that God's story of Christianity is not about rules and legalistic following of doctrine, that it is at its core a love story that God sacrifices and opens up a new path of, of amazing grace that we live in, wholly unique in this world, that message. It changes the very nature of the relationship between the creator and the creation and it allows us to to live with hope. Does Jesus living this out bring cost to himself? Absolutely, and to his followers. Does it change the world? It absolutely has forever. Now you might be sitting there going, well, yeah, it's Jesus, right? He's like partially, he's like fully God, right? Like, of course he can do it, but does it actually work in the real world beyond that? And there's no more important weekend when we remember that it can work than this weekend. When we remember the life and the ministry of Martin Luther King Jr. We are going to be told this weekend and tomorrow on his holiday that Martin Luther King was a really great civil rights person who believed in human rights and was a good speaker and just inspired people. And that is a gross reduction of who he was. Our culture wants to separate him from the philosophy and spirituality that led them because it's comfortable that way and it's safe that way. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement was bathed in the gospel. And we can't forget that. It was bathed in Luke chapter 6. It was bathed in the idea that unearned suffering, as King said, is ultimately redemptive. And that it was in living this out and asking others to live it out as well that our world changed. That as we were, he said, we're going to be having people when we sit on a bus or try to vote or go to school and people are going to taunt us or have violence upon us or all different kinds of things. Our response is neither to counterpunch, but we also will not run. The civil rights movement, the way that the leaders talked about it was that it was a campaign in different cities. There was a campaign in Chicago, a campaign in Birmingham, a campaign in Albany. That's a term of war. A campaign and the civil rights movement was meant to instigate conflict. It was meant to bring conflict. We're going to go to the place where we know conflict is going to happen. We're not going to counterpunch. We're not going to run from it. We are going to respond in love, with prayer, with mercy. Believing that as we do it and accept the blows and the words and the slurs of hatred, that the heart and fabric of our nation actually can change, that God can change through this. There are many examples of this, but one of the most powerful that I've read about took place in Birmingham in 1963, where the Birmingham police and the fire were controlled by a man named Bull Connor, a very disturbed and racist individual. Many of the iconic photos of the civil rights movement came from Birmingham as police dogs were unleashed on marchers and children, as fire hoses that broke bones and caused concussions were unleashed day after day on marchers. And the marchers did not strike back but they kept showing up day after day after day and accepting this abuse. Until one day when they were marching towards the city courthouse 
And as they were marching, Bull Connor told them to stop, and they didn't stop. They kept coming. So he turned to the firemen and said, turn on the hoses. But on this day, no one turned on a hose. The marchers got closer again, and Bull Connor screamed in the firemen's faces, turn on the hoses. But these firemen who had spent weeks turning on the hoses and watching these bodies that were battered had changed. Something altered inside of them. The spark of the divine encountered them and the marchers marched past them in peace and then went and prayed on the steps of the courthouse. These firemen were changed because of the actions of these individuals. Our nation was changed when we watched on TV and were confronted by our own hypocrisy of saying that we were a nation where all men were created equal. And yet this is how we treat people because of the color of their skin. And it caused us to rethink who we were as we watched that. That if, that, if, that if the civil rights movement had responded in violence, we could have avoided that hard question. Is racism alive in this country today? Absolutely. But have we made amazing progress since Rosa Parks walked onto a bus in Montgomery, Alabama? Absolutely. And it's not because we've become nicer on our own. It's because some Jesus followers choose to follow Luke 6 and invite others to do it with them. And it changes our world. And this is the call before you today. Ultimately, this is not about looking at history saying, isn't it good that some people a long time ago took this seriously and did it, even though it cost them? This is how Jesus says you and I are called to be known. In the face of our enemies. In the face of those who may do us harm. May we hear that call today. And ask ourselves what our response is supposed to look like. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask and pray this day for your leading and your guiding as we seek to follow you, to be your people, and to change this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.